0: On this Labor Day weekend, we have the opportunity to consider the one who did the work for us, and that's Jesus Christ. And with that in mind, we're going to begin a new series in today in the coming weeks and months where we're going to be looking at Paul's ministry to the people in a region known as Galatia, modern-day Turkey. In order to be able to delve into the book of Galatians in your Newer Testament, what we're going to do is to spend a couple of weeks together, talking about Paul's experience in that region known as Galatia, which means that we're going to have to turn initially to the book of Acts to be able to think through carefully what it is that Paul would have them to understand. So this morning and the next two Sundays following, we'll spend a little time in Acts 13 and 14 to get our bearings. All of this bearing in mind is that it will push us forward into a study in the book of Galatians towards the end of this month and then towards the months to come. Today, I'd like to start reading in verse 13 of this 13th chapter. I'm going to take it down with you in the reading towards verse 25, 35, 25. And that will give us a a sense of what God wants to be able to draw to our attention. Now, Luke, who wrote the book of Luke, as well as the sequel, the book of Acts, shares these words with you and me that from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. And from Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. And on the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. And after reading, after the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. And all this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. And then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. So, from this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, who do you think I am? I am not that one. No, but he is coming after me, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. So now what we're going to do is we're going to look at these verses, and we're going to ask God to show us what he's got here for us so that you and I are better equipped to be able to tell others about Jesus in a way that connects with the mindset of people in 2013. Let's look to
1: God in prayer. Our Father, as we begin this new series,
0: we're thankful for the gospel. We're thankful, Father, for the fact that you've sent Jesus to die for our sins on this Labor Day weekend where our nation pauses to consider the worker
1: people on the Lord's Day gather together to celebrate the ultimate worker and his finished work Jesus on that cross We can't add to it. We can't subtract from it.
0: We can't better what you have done. We can't reduce what Christ has achieved. But rather, we acknowledge the fact that through his resurrection, you've validated his work.
1: We don't have to validate it. You've done it.
0: With that in mind, Father, what we need then is a model. We need an example of how to be able to present this well in the culture we live in.
1: We're praying that this passage will help us to do that. Now, you know our needs, and you know, you know, Father, what keeps us awake at night. You know that heavy-hearted parents. You know the people that are struggling to make ends meet. You're ministering
0: right now to that student who's headed off to college and you are preparing that high school student for what's about to take place this fall.
1: You've gone ahead of us and you stand behind us. And you're there for us. So, Father, warm these hearts Gauge these minds. Shape these wills. Because again, Father, we've come here now to see Jesus. Him only. We pray this now in Jesus' name.
0: Amen. A passage like this um, recalls uh, a man who was running for the state representative in Kansas. His name was George Jelinek, and he had this powerful slogan that obviously resonated with the voters. He said, I promise that I'll work for you. In his retrospect on his career in politics, he was asked what was his most memorable encounter. He said it was that particular campaign and that particular campaign promise. There's a farmer who came up to me and said, I voted for you, and now I need your help putting up some alfalfa. When can you come over?
1: I made the promise. I said I'd work for him. And so by Jiminy, I did it. Quote, unquote.
0: What fascinates us is that when you and I look carefully at this passage of Scripture that begins to unlock the door of Paul's ministry to the people in Galatia, twice he emphasizes that God made a promise. And that promise pertains to God's work for us, not our work for God. If you look very carefully at what's stated in verse 23, Paul would challenge the people in the synagogue. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. In verse 32, we're informed, we tell you the good news, what God promised our fathers. He's fulfilled for us, the children, by raising up Jesus as he promised. And the promise pertains to God's work through Jesus Christ for us, not how we, based upon in this Labor Day weekend, emphasis upon the worker, attempt to achieve something from God. So with that in mind, what I want to do with you now is look very carefully at this linkage between God's promise and God's work and draw out three significant observations that Luke would have us in this passage to understand and embrace as a model for the way in which we go about ministering to other people who need to understand very clearly the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. It's a model of evangelism that unfolds here. And the first is found in verse 16, down through verse 25. We're going to phrase it like this, number one, They're based upon his promise, So I want you to note with me how God prepares people for Christ. Now, begin here in verse 13, and notice that from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia. This is modern-day Turkey. They have left Cyprus. Cyprus was the native soil for Barnabas. They head towards this region, which is the native soil of Paul. They leave John. John returns to Jerusalem. We don't know why John Mark left them. Was it doctrinal or was it method-based? We don't know. All we know is that a departure has occurred and the numbers have been reduced. In verse 14, from Perga, they went to Pisidian Antioch, and here now, something captures your attention and mine. Paul has strategically gone to a place that was the hub of east-west traffic flow. Why? He wants the gospel to be able to move as rapidly as possible eastward and westward simultaneously. Which means, then, that when you and I are burdened for people to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, look for the natural hub, the place where the quickest flow of gospel movement can take place, can move, can go about its business of penetrating hearts for Jesus. Paul went out of his way to position himself in a strategic Roman city known for its military fortresses, known for its commerce, known for its roads, now he's chosen his hub. Have you picked your hub?
1: Ponder the hub in your neighborhood,
0: in the town in which you live. Ponder your hub at the workplace and ponder your hub in your relationships. And ask yourself, what is the most strategic way to create a sense of flow for the gospel to penetrate hearts? What's your hub? And have you chosen it well? Now, as Paul has chosen his hub, it's known as Pisidian Antioch. Now, what he also does is that he chooses his time. Sabbath. They entered the synagogue and sat Notice that he's not in the marketplace, which means that he's not out among the secular unbelievers at this moment. He's in the synagogue, and he's positioning himself here among most likely religious unbelievers. After you've chosen your hub, know your audience. Know who it is that you are communicating with. Try to understand their values, their heritage, their background, their experience. Paul is in Turkey. He's in the synagogue. He's in a strategic location. He looks around. He takes his seat. At this point, the synagogue rulers sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. The reason for this is that typically the elders in the synagogues were not at that time period known for the teaching ministry, but rather administrative responsibility. And so they are giving those that are gifted in teaching the opportunity now to present something pertaining to the word of God. And Paul seizes the moment. You and I are informed in verse 16, he stood up. That tells you something. If he were in Jerusalem, in the synagogues in that region, teachers would sit down. Those were Hebraistic synagogues. But he's not in Jerusalem. He's in modern-day Turkey in our terminology. This is a Hellenistic synagogue. He stands up to teach. Frankly, I like the Hebrew model better, if you ask me. There he is now. He sizes up his audience. And as he does so, he motions with his hand and said, Men of Israel, and you Gentiles who worship God, stop right there. Know who it is that you are speaking to. He has understood, most likely now, he's got a religious rather than secularized audience. Which means, then, that that will help to determine his starting point to get people to Jesus. If he were in Athens, that's described in Acts 17, his starting point would be looking around on the streets at the false gods. And drawing attention to current events and leading them forward from, from the sense of what they see in the world to the cross. But this is a religious audience, yet unbelieving. So for religious unbelievers, you've got a different starting point. So he will begin with their heritage, he'll begin with their scriptures, he'll begin with their traditions but he will still have the same focal point, the cross of Jesus Christ. Your starting point may not necessarily be your focal point. Because a lot of people aren't ready to start talking about the cross. So you're going to have to determine your starting point based upon who you're talking to and then create a sense of forward movement towards your focal point, the cross of Jesus Christ, which is your non-negotiable. Which means you've got to know your audience. You've got to know your culture. But by all means, stay true to your scripture. Now, Paul has identified he's got both Jews and religious Gentiles in this synagogue. That means, then, they're used to hearing something regarding the Old Testament's being taught. That means, then, that he'll start with their starting point, the Old Testament. Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. Verse 17. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers.
1: What's that? The book of Genesis.
0: God called out Abram. God then, from the line of Abram, chose Isaac, not Ishmael. From the line of Isaac, God chose Jacob, not Esau. From the line of Jacob, God chose Judah, and out of Judah would come that one who you and I know is King David. But thus far, what you and I find here is that Paul has established a natural starting point. He's evaluated his audience and knows, I'm going to start with Genesis. He doesn't end that, but he starts there. Determine your starting point. But notice furthermore, He then goes on to say this. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. What's that? Exodus. Exodus. But he doesn't stay there either. Because then he goes on in verse 18 and says, he endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. That's Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. What's he doing for you and me? He is creating a sense of forward movement. His starting point will not be his ending point. His starting point takes into account the people that he's communicating the gospel to. And from there, he is going to take them on a spiritual journey forward towards Jesus. Have you created within your own mindset a way to be able to develop a road system based upon the people that you are burdened for to get them to travel with you toward Jesus? The starting point for a secular unbeliever will be different than the starting point for a religious unbeliever, but the focal point remains the same. Jesus. The question is, where will you begin to get them to where they need to be? That's where you've got to interpret, evaluate, examine the people you are investing time with. What he's done thus far, religious unbelievers, there, he's already walked them through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In other words, what he is doing thus far. He is preparing them to be able to understand the story of Jesus Christ. He doesn't start there, but he will end there. And you and I have got to be able to make the distinction as well. And I thought about that when I came across the story of the Summer Games of 2012. Because there's an interesting story about an individual named Kim Rody who won the gold medal in skeet shooting making her the first American to win five Olympic medals in five consecutive Olympic games. Because I love, and I'm sure you do too, Olympic stories, I was curious and began to do a search, what makes her tick? How do you win that many medals over that long period of time In an interview with the New York Times, Rhodey answered the question of how she goes about doing it. She shoots anywhere from 500 to 1,000 rounds every day of the week, year in, year out.
1: She said, it's the only way I can stay
0: prepared. And when I came across that phrase... I think then about what you and I are looking at here. Because what God is doing now is that he is prepping. He's preparing. He has walked the people, Genesis now, through Deuteronomy. And through the working of the Holy Spirit, Paul now is following the Holy Spirit's lead and progressively moving this religious unbelieving crowd forward towards the destination. Distinguish between your starting point and your focal point, your starting point determines, is determined by who you're talking to, but your focal point is Jesus Christ. And His finished work. Now, with that in mind, Paul's got something more to say because he moves them forward out of the early stages of, of this form of preparation to the middle stages of preparation. Notice that he goes on to say that what God did at that point then, in verse 19, is to overthrow seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. What's that? The book of Joshua. And after this, God gave them judges, verse 20. Book of Judges. See how he's creating forward movement towards that cross? And then in verse 21, the people asked for a king. He gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king, and he testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And then the most amazing and astounding emphasis is brought out in this gospel presentation. Underline what comes next in verse 23. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Based upon his promise, note how God prepares people for Christ. Now, what Paul's done is that he's moved our judges into first and second Samuel. continual forward movement toward that cross. He's prepping his crowd, and they're anticipating this linear movement, wondering, he's getting, he's getting closer and closer to, a, to where, where we're at in our, own, in our own time period. How does this relate? How relevant is this to my life? But when he gets to David, he talks about the promise that God gave to David, and that promise was that this would be an eternal kingdom. Now, you and I know that Jesus Christ did not stay in that grave. That three days later, God raised him from the grave, thus it's an eternal kingdom. So what Paul is now doing is he's using the Old Testament, relating to his religious unbelieving colleagues there in the synagogue, He's prepping them for resurrection by emphasizing this promise that God gave to David that we read about in 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17. Tremendous prep work. But so often we get impatient with prep work. You know the scraping that takes place before you do the painting. You have to get rid of the old paint that's chipped and get it down so that you're going to be able to create a smooth surface. Paul is willing to do the hard prep work in order to get into the heart of the person. Are you willing? Are you investing in prep work for those those who need to know Jesus? You don't end with the prep work. But you do start with the prep work. And then notice where he goes from here. In verse 24, before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. Now he's jumped. Once he's got that promise of an eternal kingdom, he jumps over time to John the Baptist, who was the last in the preparatory stage prior to Jesus who would be the one who would be pointing towards the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John, then, completing his work, said in verse 25, Who do you think I am? I am not that one. No. But he's coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And now they're prepared to hear about Jesus.
1: What's Paul doing? He's prepping them for what's about to come their way.
0: Now they're leaning forward. He's done his prep work. He's got them to the point now, time-wise, where they're anticipating, how does past relate to present? Because typically, religious unbelief, I deal a lot with the past, you see there's something about heritage and traditions and and, and what's gone before. He understands that, and so should you and I. So you and I have got to figure out, are we dealing with a religious unbeliever or a secular unbeliever? Once then, he has reached that point of doing the prep work. He's able to show them that in God's prep plan, God has provided a sense of protection, such as during the days in Egypt. God has provided a sense of correction, such as in the day of judges. God has provided a sense of direction, such as when John the Baptist points at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now what you want to do then is you minister to that heart who so desperately needs Jesus, after you've figured out what your starting point is, find ways to minister that threefold aspect of protection. How has God protected you thus far? Correction. What has God done in your life to produce what we might call A mid-course correction, where you've got to readjust the sails and move in a different direction where God wants you to go. Direction. How God prepped you to stay focused upon the one who died for your sins. Now remember on this Labor Day weekend, the emphasis among God's people is not our work. The emphasis is Christ's work as God promised. So now, based upon his promise, note how God prepares people for Christ. Verse 16 through 25. Once you're at that edge, and you've got that sense now of how we've got to connect this to the heart of the person, here then is your, your second observation. That based upon his promise. Note with me, number two, how God saves his people through Christ. Pick it up at verse 26. Check it out. Again, he reengages with the people he cares about here. Brothers. Sense the affinity. Verse 26. Children of Abraham. The Jews now realize he's still... He's still thinking about us. You God-fearing Gentiles, they don't feel out of place now, as if he's talking about only one part of the group. He has taken into account the sum total of the people that are before him. He then says to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. What was their problem? Two. Two problems. First, they didn't recognize Jesus for who he is. The second, when the scriptures were covered, On Sabbath, they didn't get it. They didn't get a sense of where it leads, of how that promise of an eternal kingdom would somehow link up to one who three days later would be raised from the dead. Right over the heads. Our concern in our culture, likewise, is that right over the head, what we've got to do is to create this preparation process, this forward movement, taking into account starting points and focal point. Starting points, plural, focal points, singular. And now, as we've inched towards Jesus Christ here, notice with me that what Paul does is that he provides you and provides me with the model, then, of Christ's saving work. He's the same. Check out verse 28. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Thus far, they're probably thinking to themselves, yeah, that's what happens. Now we're dealing with the crucifixion of Christ, verse 28 and 29. But he doesn't stop. There, and neither should you and neither should I he continues to create what you and I call forward movement verse 30 but God it's the most powerful two words you'll find in the Bible everything seems to be going wrong but God Breaks in, But God raised him from the dead. If you look very carefully at all the words and the phrases found in these verses thus far, God is the subject. He's doing the work. From the choosing in Genesis, through the protection and the prospering in Exodus, through the raising up of a king in 1 Samuel, through raising Jesus Christ from the dead. And now they're probably thinking to themselves, that's why he jumped from David to Jesus. We're talking about the promise. Eternal kingdom. Eternal life. Likewise, what you and I have to do is figure out when do we jump? When do we jump over time? When do we have to jump over events? When do we get to the focal point? Death, resurrection, Jesus Christ. He has done so wisely, effectively, and he has done so taking into account the flow of the traffic of time. Do you do that? And are you distinguishing the way in which unbelieving religionists think and unbelieving secularists think? And have you figured out which starting point to utilize based upon who you're hanging out with this coming week? This is critical. Now, because Paul is dealing with religious unbelievers, what he now does is that he ties together Christ's saving work in verse 28 through 31 with scriptural witness in 32 through 37. He pulls out three scriptures. Why? Why? Because these people know their Old Testament, he's in the synagogue, it's a natural place, and so you do with what connects with where they're at. And he chooses three messianic passages, all of which tie to Jesus. For example, verses 32 and 33. We tell you the good news, what God promised, key word. Our fathers, he's fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I've become your father. That doesn't pertain to Bethlehem. That pertains to the empty tomb. You are my son. Today I've become your father. A second passage. The fact that God raised him from the dead never to decay is stated in these ways. I'll give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. Isaiah 55, verse 3. He's he's using the Old Testament because these are Old Testament people. A third passage. Psalm 16, verse 10, that talks about the resurrection of the future Messiah. You will not let your Holy One see decay. Quote, unquote. Psalm 2, 7. Isaiah 55, verse 3. Psalm 16, verse 10. Now he takes the saving work and the scriptural witness, brings them together to help the religious unbeliever connect the dots and see how significant this is. They are going to have to address the fact that God has raised Jesus from the dead. What does that have to say to you? And what does that have to say likewise, you see, to me?
1: Tim Keller tells the
0: story of a pastor in Italy. He saw a grave of a man who had died centuries before who was an unbeliever, completely against Christianity, but a little afraid of it at the same time. So the man had this huge stone slab put over his grave so he would not have to be raised from the dead in case there was a resurrection from the dead. And he had insignias, Keller writes, put all over the slab saying, quote, I do not want to be raised from the dead. I do not believe in it, unquote. But evidently, when he was buried, an acorn must have fallen into the grave. So a hundred plus years later, the acorn grew up through the grave, split that slab, and now a tall towering oak tree thrived. Keller poses this question. If an acorn, which has power of biological life in it, can split a slab of that magnitude, what can the acorn of
1: God's resurrection power do in a person's life? Note how the physical was used to illustrate the spiritual. Look for similar ways in ministering to the people you're so incredibly burdened for. And when you do,
0: you're ready for the third observation. That thirdly, based upon his promise, note with me how God challenges people concerning Christ. Verse 38 through 52. So now he brings it home, doesn't he, in 38 and says, Therefore, my brothers, he's still conscious of connecting with people. He has a heart for them. and So should you and so should I. I want you to know that through Jesus, not through self-effort, this Labor Day is about Christ's labor, not ours. The forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you through him, not us. Everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you and they lean forward and saying, he's talking to me. I know those scriptures because he's still utilizing his Old Testament with this religious unbelieving crowd. And as he does so, there are going to be two significant reactions that unfold. The first is found in verse 42 through 44. There's going to be some who respond positively. Look at 42. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. They're hungry. They're thirsty. They want more. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. And this had such a powerful effect on the city. Check out 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord
1: cultivate that kind of hunger there will be
0: some who respond positively 42 through 44 but don't overlook 45 when the jews saw the crowds they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what paul was saying that secondly there will be some who resist aggressively it's going to be some who respond positively. There's going to be some who resist aggressively. Religious unbelievers, secular unbelievers alike, who resist the idea of God's grace and are more interested in labor on their terms than the phrase that is finished from the lips based upon Christ's terms. You tie it together. And you're back to that man who said, I made the promise. I'll work for you. And on the Slavery Day weekend, you look very carefully at this promise. Because as he promised, he'd work for us. Jesus died for our sins doing that very thing. So, determine your starting point. Stay focused upon your focal point and create a path
1: that leads people to Jesus. Let's stand together. Father, thank you that you give us models. You provide
0: us with examples. And you equip us with tools to understand the significance of Christ's work. You've given us a national three-day holiday weekend where it's natural to talk about work and the laborer. I praying now you'll give each one who loves Jesus in these services the opportunity to build a bridge from this national holiday to the cross of Jesus Christ and to talk about
1: Christ's work, God's laborer, the one who died for our sins. And we thank you
0: that you fulfill your promise by raising him from the dead. So minister to each one and in the various gatherings we may find ourselves in. Give us words, Father. Point to Jesus.
1: We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.